I want you to think about the last time that you stayed up all night long. I know for some it's a lot more recent than they would have uh, cared to admit. I know for the college students it's probably only been a few days. I know our students, 6th to 12th grade, had a, a lock-in back in the fall, and they stayed up all night long, and man, bless those volunteers who helped out that night. I'm so glad I wasn't there. <laughs> I, I really, really dislike staying up late. Uh, I'm about, I'm pretty worthless after 10 p.m. I'd much rather wake up early with a cup of coffee and enjoy the peace and solitude that the mornings bring, but that wasn't always the case. Um, I used to be cool. I used to stay up late. Uh, I once stayed up for the midnight premiere of the seventh Harry Potter movie when it came out. It's pretty, pretty cool. And, you know, in high school, in college, I stayed up late. I stayed up all night um, in high school. So this is circa 2005, 2009, in that range. Um, my friends and I would stay up all night, and it would be on Thanksgiving night and into uh, Black Friday. And this is back when there were actually good deals on Black Friday, where you actually had to uh, go stand in line at 2 a.m. for the doors to open at 5 a.m. for uh, those limited quantity big ticket items, right? And so my friends would come over, I don't know, probably around midnight, and we'd eat leftover turkey sandwiches, and we'd drink a lot of soda, and then we'd go stand in the cold lines until Best Buy or Circuit City or Walmart or whatever it may be open. Circuit City, you guys remember Circuit City? So I got my first MP3 player. Uh, but that was then, and this is now. And now I try to be in bed at 9 p.m. Uh, every night. Uh, <laughs> that's right, yeah. Uh, it's hard. It's hard for me to stay up late. Uh, it's, even if it's a good reason, I still struggle with staying up late. And so as we open up our text today, we're going to read of a time that Jesus actually stayed up all night long. Uh, but his reasons weren't selfishly motivated. He wasn't trying to get an iPod Nano at a good price. No, his, his motivation was to be with God the Father, to commune with God in prayer. And he goes to the mountains, and he prays, and he stays up all night to call his apostles, to call his 12 apostles to be sent out to bring the gospel to the nations. And he, he calls them, in a way, to die. And so our big truth for today is this. The kingdom of God belongs to those who follow Jesus. And those who follow Jesus are to live in light of their divine calling. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26 today. And before we jump in, I just want to provide a little context. In this passage I already mentioned, we're going to see that Jesus uh, goes up to the mountains, he, he prays, he calls his 12 disciples, he comes down from the mountains, and he delivers this epic sermon. It's often called uh, the Sermon on the Plain. And so there is a lot of overlap with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's in Matthew's account. Uh, there's a lot of overlap in the themes, and it, essentially it's just both sermons are putting forth a Christian ethic that we are to follow. And there are three primary theories for the correlation or the relationship between these two sermons. So the first is that they're the same sermon, 
uh, it's just that Matthew and Luke highlight different aspects of that sermon for their own theological purpose in their gospel. Uh, the second is that there are just two different sermons recorded at different times. And the third is that Matthew and Luke collected sayings of Jesus throughout his ministry, and they have just compiled them into sermon formats. And so I think the second theory is most likely. I think these are two different sermons recorded at different times, uh, but they have overlapping themes. And this makes sense, right? It's not uncommon for uh, preachers who are traveling around to use sometimes the same sermon, but just to adapt it to their audience. Think about even when you share a story or when you share your testimony, right? It's the same story, but depending on where you go, how much time you have, who you're with, uh, you're going to adapt your testimony to fit that context or that setting. And so I think that's going on here in the Sermon on the Plain. And with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and read Luke 6, starting in verse 12. In these days... He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealots, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so our text begins by saying, in these days. The phrase, in these days, calls to mind what Jesus has been up to lately. Uh, how his ministry has unfolded up to this point. And so it's in these days that Jesus goes camping. He found it necessary to retreat from the disciples and from the crowds and to spend time with God the Father. He didn't go up to the mountains just because the mountains were a nice spot to get away. No, actually in scripture, mountaintops usually represent the overlap between heaven and earth and it's where God's presence dwells. And so Jesus went up to the mountains to experience fellowship with God through prayer. It says he continued in prayer all night. 
And I heard it said that the fastest way to humble a Christian is to ask them how their prayer life is going. So often, our prayer life is haphazard. It lacks consistency. How often are you praying? Is it just when you remember? Is it just when times are hard? It lacks intimacy. Do you long to be with Jesus? Are you pained when you have to quit praying to go do something else? And our prayer life often lacks duration. Are your prayers just made up of 30-second prayers that are scattered throughout the day and week? What about the content of our prayers? Are we primarily asking God for things? I'm sure that we all have uh, people in life who usually only call us or text us when they need something, or when they want something. I know I have been that person on more than one occasion. And we see their name come through on the phone, and we just think, okay, I wonder what they, what they want now, what they need now. And likely, we still love them, and we want to help them, and we're going to help them and care for them. But part of us feels a little used, does it not? And so I wonder if the same thing could be said about our prayer life in relation to God. Do we just call on God when we need things? Is he a genie in a bottle? And don't get me wrong, God loves to hear and answer our prayers, and he loves to give his children good gifts. It's not wrong to ask, but is that the only thing that you're doing in prayer, is asking God for things? When we see Jesus retreat from the crowds to pray, he isn't just asking God for things. He's going to spend time with God. And if Jesus needs to pray, we need to pray. If Jesus spent all night in prayer, I'm guessing that you and I need to dedicate more time to prayer. Busy schedules often excuse our prayer life, but really I think busy schedules should motivate our prayer life. We don't want to be relying on ourselves and our own strength and dependence. We want to be relying and trusting on the Lord. And so if prayer is something that you struggle with, I just say start by increasing it, small bits, incrementally. If you're used to praying like 30 seconds or a minute a day, you know, increase that. Do five minutes of undistracted time. Work your way into it. If, if you pray for five minutes, do ten minutes. Block out these chunks in your weekly schedule where I'm going to pray for five minutes or ten minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes or I'm going to spend an hour in prayer this week of undistracted time and solitude with the Lord. And hey, get up to the mountains and do it, right? We are blessed to have the mountains in our backyard. What a great excuse to go to the mountains, to go be with the Lord and pray. Take advantage of, of the mountains being right here in our backyard. We are so blessed by that. So, what did Jesus pray for when he went up to the mountains and spent the night in the mountains? Verse 13 says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So it's pretty remarkable that Jesus, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who has the power to heal, is spending all night discerning what God's will is. And what Jesus is discerning is who these 12 apostles are going to be. It's a weighty decision, right? These are going to be the ones who are sent out by God to advance the gospel, to establish and to lead the churches. And we know that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has a lot of followers already. But yet he chose 12. 
The 12 apostles, I think, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And in this correlation, Israel now becomes the church. Jesus is showing unity and continuity with the Old Testament by establishing these 12 apostles. So who are they? Well, Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealots, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And we don't have time to look at each one of these apostles individually, uh, but it is worth noting that this group isn't made up of like most popular or the brightest or most successful. It's actually a hodgepodge group, and, and some in this group don't even get named again in Scripture. This is the only account we have of them. But yet, these were the 12 who were sovereignly chosen by Jesus. These are going to be the leaders of the church. Let me reread what Jesus does after he chooses his 12 apostles. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him, to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. You see, Jesus descended the mountain, and he stands on a level place to preach. And this is why this sermon is often called the Sermon on the Plain, or the Sermon on the Level. One pastor makes the comment that it is also called Sermon on the Level because Jesus is about to level with his disciples and have some really hard conversations. And it, it happens. They have some hard conversations. And so here we see three groups of people who are coming to hear Jesus preach. We have the 12 apostles. We have a great crowd of disciples. And then we have a great multitude of people from far and wide. And so there's a, there's a pretty large group here who are eagerly waiting to hear Jesus preach. And this kind of reminds me um, of concerts. And when you go to concerts and you are waiting for the main headlining band to get on stage, and there's just a sense of excitement and anticipation and electricity in the air as you just wait for the band to step up on stage. I used to go to a lot of concerts in high school and in college, and I have had very wide uh, taste and genre from punk rock to country music and everything in between. Uh, and so I went to a lot of concerts, and so this, familiar, this, this is a familiar feeling for me. Uh, and I think back to, I think back to my, my favorite bands, uh, Reliant K. I don't know if anyone knows Reliant K, but I love Reliant K. Yep, and I got to see them a bunch of times, and uh, one time I even caught a drumstick from the drummer, and I had him sign it afterwards, and... It made my high school self very, very, very happy. And so I think there's the same like anticipation in the air as the disciples and the crowds of people are waiting to hear Jesus preach. There's anticipation. People came to hear Jesus teach, to be healed, to have demons cast out. They were eager to touch Jesus. They would experience blessing and healing. And verse 20 says that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So this implies that Jesus was preaching to the disciples and not to the crowds. But he was preaching in such a way that it was intended for the crowds to listen in on what Jesus was saying. It's kind of like at a wedding when the pastor or the officiant is 
preaching his sermon or he's giving his charges, he's looking uh, directly at the couple. But he's doing so in such a way that the guests at the wedding can lean in and they can hear and consider what the pastor is saying. And so the first portion of Jesus' sermon is the Beatitudes. It's the blessings and the woes or the blessings and the curses. One commentator says this, that this is a sample of sacrificial ethics expected of those who heed the call to follow Jesus. It is not a treatise on what people must do to enter the kingdom of God, but rather on what is expected of those who already are in the kingdom. Luke heralds the way of the kingdom of God as a radical antithesis to the ways of the world. And so there are four beatitudes followed by four corresponding woes, and they go together. They show what the upside-down kingdom is. They show this great reversal. And we see that the reversal is how the disciples are to view the kingdom of God. God's economy is not like the economy of the world. God's priorities are not the priorities of the world. This sermon is about how disciples respond to the gospel. It shows what kingdom living looks like. It shows what it looks like to live in light of their divine calling. So let's jump into the first blessing and the first woe. We're just going to walk through them, all four of them. Verse 21 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Here, blessed is not a prayer requesting blessing. It's a state of being blessed through virtue of belonging to the kingdom of God. And you may hear it be translated as happy. Happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But as we understand that word happiness today, it might not be the most fitting word, uh, but certainly there is an idea of happiness here. When you have counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, and you are living in light of this upside-down reality, this upside-down kingdom, you're going to experience happiness even when you are facing hardships and trials. So blessed are you who are poor. This is really saying that blessed are my disciples who lack in wealth and material things and yet who are still trusting in me. This word poor can also include uh, more than just the financially poor. It can encompass a low social status, uh, the marginalized, uh, the disabled, the outsiders, the vulnerable. It can mean uh, spiritually poor. And in scripture, uh, sometimes we see that poverty is neutral, just in the sense that uh, the good can experience poverty and the evil can experience poverty. So the disciples are not blessed because they are poor. The disciples are blessed because of their trust in God. And if you remember back to Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to the synagogue on a Sabbath and he opened up the scroll of Isaiah. And he read from what we would see as Isaiah 61, which says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus declared to be the messianic servant of the Lord who will bring deliverance. And here in the Sermon on the Plain, again, Jesus is alluding to this passage in Isaiah. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. To the one who has nothing, but whose trust is in the Lord, theirs is the kingdom of God. 
I mean, Jesus' 12 apostles, they gave up everything to follow Jesus, right? They forsook earthly riches for heavenly and eternal riches. And by letting their riches go, they could no longer cling to money as a crutch, but they had to solely depend on the Lord. And so relatively speaking, I think that we all here are pretty rich in America compared to other countries. But even still, I, I know that there are many who face financial difficulties and burdens and stresses. So I just want to encourage you that when you are following Jesus, to be poor is to be rich. There can be joy in the lack of money because you know that everything in the kingdom of God is yours. You are spiritually rich. And on the flip side of that, though, having excess of money can really numb us to our need for the Lord, for our dependence on the Lord. Money and wealth can easily trick us into comforts. And when that happens, we start trusting in our wallets rather than trusting in the Lord. We can think that if our bank accounts are full, that means God is blessing me. Don't be fooled by that. Don't correlate your wealth with your satisfaction or your joy. That will lead you down a path of destruction. This is why Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You can be materially rich and spiritually poor. And that's what the corresponding woe in verse 24 says. But woe to you are rich, for you have received your consolation. So I just hope and pray that we would heed Jesus' warning here to not be swept up in the temptation to pursue earthly riches. It will lead down a path of destruction. Let's look at the second blessing and the second woe. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. In a lot of ways, this is simil- uh, similar to the first beatitude. Those who are hungry are lacking. They are lacking physical nourishment, and in another sense, they are lacking uh, spiritually. They are hungry for, for spiritual things. In Psalm 61, the psalmist is, is seeking the Lord, and this is what he says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. You see, Jesus' disciples were, were hungry, probably both physically and definitely spiritually. They craved the Lord's presence. And here, Jesus tells his disciples, you who are hungry will be satisfied. Although your hunger, although you hunger, Because of your dependence on me, I will satisfy you. He's going to satisfy them both spiritually in the here and now, but also in the future when the eternal kingdom comes. And he may even satisfy their physical hunger. If not in this age, then assuredly in the age to come, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are not used to being hungry. Whenever we get the slightest bit of hunger, we can satisfy that craving in minutes. 
even when we're not hungry, we have a tendency to just snack uh, and overindulge. And I, I do think that, that gluttony is a sin that usually just flies under the radar in our culture. I know so often, for me personally, I have a lack of self-control when it comes to food. I really do. I cannot leave food on my plate. If it's there, even if I'm full and satisfied, I will finish what's on my plate rather than save it for later. Every time I go to Chipotle, I order a double wrap burrito uh, with double rice, double fajitas, double meat, double salsa, and I always have the intention, I'm going to save half of this for tomorrow. And I get home, and I, I, I lack the self-control, and I eat the whole burrito, and I feel bad. And I don't know about you, but it is really difficult for me to fast. I don't like being hungry. I get grumpy, and I get upset, and I get quiet. You can ask my wife. I'm, I'm a joy to be around when I'm hungry. Fasting is a really hard spiritual discipline. It really is. But unless we are fasting for an extended period of time, most of us do not know what it's like to be hungry. When we fast, when we abstain from food, we feel the pain of hunger, and it's here we realize our dependence on food to sustain us and to make us happy and satisfied. And in this, it turns our focus on our spiritual need for God. Without Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we would be left spiritually hungry and unsatisfied. In John chapter 4, Jesus is on his way to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria, and he stops at Jacob's well. And the Samaritan woman approached to draw water, and Jesus asked for her a drink. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If anyone in here this morning feels unsatisfied, feels unfulfilled in this life, feels a longing for something bigger than themselves, if anyone in here is spiritually poor, spiritually thirsty, I invite you to drink deeply from the living waters that Jesus offers. There is a spring that gushes forth grace and mercy, and you are freely invited to drink and to take your fill. Turn from trying to satisfy your thirst with the things of this world. They will just leave you empty and wanting more. Renounce dependence on yourself. Renounce happiness in the material things. Renounce satiating your carnal appetites and cravings with the trivial fleeting pleasures of this world and drink thirst-quenching living water and be eternally satisfied. I hope you're starting to see how Jesus' kingdom brings reversal. Let's look at the next blessing and the next woe. This is the second half of verse 21. It says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Here, Jesus speaks into the suffering and the sorrow that we experience living in a fallen and a broken world. 
I love how one pastor puts it. We weep for our sins, repenting of all the wrong that we have done. We weep for the sins of others, lamenting the dishonor they do to God. We weep for the sins of our society, knowing that we ourselves are implicated in their iniquity. We weep for the lost, praying that God would rescue them. We weep for those who suffer, grieving over all the natural disasters, armed conflicts, social injustices that happen every day. And we weep for the loved ones that we have lost, knowing that they are gone and will not return. Even Jesus wept. We see this three times in the New Testament, but I'm sure that it was more than three. When Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, Jesus wept with his sister. Jesus wept over the sins of humanity. It's actually on Palm Sunday today that Jesus wept. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, and when he drew near to the city and saw it, Luke 19 says that Jesus wept over it. Jesus knew the sins of the human heart. He knew that he was riding to his death to be despised and mocked and to be crucified. And lastly, Jesus wept when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Jesus wept. His disciples wept. And I'm sure that you and I also weep. There can come pain in life so great that we forget what laughter is. We don't know when we'll laugh again. It's pain so deep that we don't want to laugh again. To laugh again would seem so illogical, would would minimize the circumstances, would minimize the hurt that we've experienced. And I know that there are many in this church who have experienced and right now even are experiencing this kind of sorrow and sadness. For Madison and I, this last month has been one of weeping. My cousin, who is really like a brother to me, uh, him and his wife lost their little baby girl, Liliana, at four days old. And I sat with my cousin and his wife as we FaceTimed the nurse in Denver who was with the baby uh, when she passed away. And we wept together. And that same weekend, uh, very, very close friends of mine lost their dad unexpectedly. And I wept with my friends. And I officiated his funeral. And through tears, I preached the gospel. Because when we confront death, when we are weeping, when we are sorrowful, our only comfort, our only hope is in Jesus. As followers of Jesus, one day we will trade our sorrow for joy, for laughter. Our pain is only temporary. In the eternal kingdom of God, we will laugh, we will worship, we will experience peace and joy to its fullest. In the vision of this eternal kingdom in Revelation 21, we read that God will dwell with his people and that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Blessed are you who weep now for one day you will laugh. This is a future guarantee But even in the here and now, we can experience the comfort and peace of Christ. Jesus loved us, and he gave himself for us. 
And as followers, we have the Holy Spirit who ministers to us and points us to that eternal kingdom that one day awaits us. On the contrary, though, there is a really sobering fact that we have to address here. Those who do not follow Jesus, those who laugh now will weep and mourn later. These are those who enjoy worldly pleasures with no regard for God. These are those who are consumed with the material, with wealth, with worldly success. Those who do not hunger or thirst, both physically or spiritually. Who laugh and mock others. Who laugh and mock God. Their reward is very, very temporary. They are those who have not embraced the upside-down kingdom and their end, their eternity, is one that lacks laughter, it lacks joy, it lacks peace, it lacks being satisfied in the presence of God. But as disciples of Jesus, we can experience restoration here and now and to its fullest in the future kingdom. Blessed are you. And there's one more blessing in woe that Jesus gives his disciples. If you look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus' disciples are going to be hated. They're going to be excluded. They're going to be mocked, insulted, slandered, gossiped about. And many of them will be martyred for their faith. These disciples are in good company because it was the same for the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus calls his disciples to rejoice when they suffer for the sake of the gospel because the reward is great in heaven. Jesus says, woe to you when you are spoken well of, when you have a good reputation. Woe to you when you are popular. You know who was popular? It was the false prophets of the Old Testament. It's because they spoke well of all things. They were constantly telling people uh, what they wanted to hear. This is what made them popular. And the same is true today. If you want to be well-liked, just tell people what they want to hear. If you want to be spoken well of in this life, don't challenge anyone. Don't stand on truth. Don't preach the gospel. Rather, accumulate wealth and success. Indulge in worldly pleasures. This is how you'll be well-liked. But it won't fulfill you. And it won't last. This will get flipped upside down in the eternal kingdom. And really, we, as modern-day Christians living in America, we don't face violent persecution. I do think that we do face an increasing hostile culture to Christianity. I see it on campus, and I see it in the workplace. And so the question for us really becomes, are you going to risk talking about Jesus for the sake of possibly offending a coworker? 
Do, do you fear awkward conversations? Are you afraid of having your reputation smeared on account of your faith in Jesus? I feel this tension. I want to be well-liked. I want to be thought positively of. When I think back to my conversion, when God radically changed my heart, I lost a lot of friends. When I said, no thanks to going to parties, don't want to get drunk with you, I lost a lot of friends. When I stood firm on my stance on homosexuality, I lost friends. I lost a lot of friends in the transition, but I took comfort knowing that Jesus was rejected. And to a very, very small extent, I shared in Christ's sufferings. And the, the beauty is that since then, I've seen some of those friendships restored and redeemed. And even now, those friendships are being rekindled. And it's an encouraging thing for me. You see, the blessed life doesn't always mean living the good life. One pastor says, there is greater, longer-lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing than with everything minus Jesus. The happiness of everything minus Jesus is temporary. The joy of Jesus plus nothing is eternal. That's good. Following Jesus means sharing in his suffering. To be called by God to follow Jesus means you may be poor. Means you may be hungry. You may weep. You may be hated. But yours is the kingdom of God. And your reward is great in heaven. The apostles and disciples that we see here were divinely called by Jesus and if you are a Christian today you are divinely called it's here in this sermon on the plane that we want learn what our ethics should be how we should live in light of our calling and again we, do, do, we don't do these things to enter the kingdom but because of the kingdom status that we already have we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him for the apostles, this call meant persecution and death. They were sent forth with the mission of bringing the gospel to the nations and of leading and establishing the churches. And as these apostles carried out their calling, they faced martyrdom. The New Testament only tells us how James, the son of Zebedee, dies. He was executed by Herod. But extra-biblical sources and accounts tell us how the other apostles may have died. Peter and Paul are said to be martyred in Rome under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. It's said that Peter was crucified upside down. He requested it be upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Thomas, who you probably remember, because of his unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas, it's said to, that he brought the gospel as far as India, that he is known as the founder of Christianity in India. And legend says that he was pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. When we are called by God 
to be his disciples, we are not called into an easy life. We are called to take up our cross and suffer for the sake of the gospel. This saying has always stood out to me. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I would add to that, I would say, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten, for your reward is great in heaven. We can follow the ways of the world, pursuing wealth, happiness, success, reputation, pleasure, or we can follow the ways of the kingdom of God. The former, ending in eternal condemnation. The latter, ending in eternal glory. We who follow Jesus, who have been called by God, are blessed. The kingdom of God is ours. We will be satisfied. We will laugh. We will have joy. We will have peace. Overland Church, would you live in light of your calling? Let me go ahead and close us in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word that pierces our hearts. Your word is living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And uh, God, I just personally feel the weight of this passage, uh, the conviction, the call, the peace and joy that it offers, the comfort that it offers, all in one. And God, I just pray that we would be a people who would live in light of our divine calling, that we would pick up our cross and we would follow you. If we'd share in your sufferings, Jesus, for the kingdom of God is ours. You have called us out of darkness into light. You have crossed us over from death to life. Would we live in light of this calling? Would we be bold to bring the gospel to a city who so desperately needs it? Help us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, the one who died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of God. We ask this all in your victorious name, King Jesus. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing one last song?